Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Kids, we have a story for you this morning because it's summertime. That's what we do in the summertime. Today's true story is something that comes from the Bible. Good job. We're getting more used to that, saying that every Sunday. And today we're talking about some people who had a special job. You know, we have lots of people at our church that have special jobs. When we're meeting in the building, Miss Naomi makes coffee almost every Sunday. That is her special job that she has. Mr. Brian goes around the building and he fixes things that are broken. That's one of his special jobs at church. Miss Connie takes care of the babies on Sunday mornings. That's one of her special jobs. There's lots of people with special jobs at church. But this story is about some special jobs that started way, way, way back when the church was just beginning. So we've been talking about how the church in Jerusalem was getting bigger and bigger every day. People were hearing about Jesus and telling other people. And there were hundreds and hundreds and eventually thousands and thousands of people who were deciding to follow Jesus and be baptized. The apostles were busy. They were preaching and praying and teaching every day. They wanted as many people as possible to know about Jesus. But they were also very busy helping people. Christians would bring money to the apostles, and the apostles would in turn use it to buy food and give that out to those who were hungry. This was important because they wanted to make sure that some of the people who didn't have any family were taken care of. So one group of people that didn't have any family to take care of them was widows. And a widow is a woman whose husband has died. And the apostles wanted to take special care to make sure these widows had enough food. But there was a problem. Because the apostles were getting so busy that sometimes they weren't getting to everyone. Some of the widows were missing out and going hungry. So the Jews that had traveled from far away, they said, the widows in our group are not getting enough food. The other widows are getting their food first and ours are going hungry. So many people were unhappy that the apostles gathered everyone together and said, listen, we don't want anyone to miss out on food, but it would take a lot of time to keep buying this food ourselves and passing it out to people. And if we spend all of our time passing out food, then we won't have any time to tell other people about Jesus. And that wouldn't be right. We need to keep teaching about Jesus. So we have an idea. We apostles are going to stop distributing food so that we can spend our time praying and preaching and teaching. And we're going to choose seven men, some seven other men that are going to be in charge of passing out the food. So make sure uh, when we're choosing them that these men are faithful to God, that they're full of the Spirit. We want them to be wise so they do a good job making sure that everything is fair and none of the widows would miss out. So everyone thought this was a really great idea. So they chose seven men, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus, and I think that's it. Those are some tricky names to make it through. I had to practice those. So the apostles prayed for these men, and they began their work. From then on, the widows and everyone else received their fair share of food, and the apostles taught even more people about Jesus. And now that everyone was sharing the work, the church could get even bigger. 
that's a little bit about what Pastor Corey is going to be talking about this morning. And as Miss Sani comes up to read that story out of God's word, if you didn't yet, there's some activity bags over on the uh, table, the blue tablecloth. If you'd like to grab one of those, you can use those to keep your mind thinking about that story during the service. Well, good morning, everybody. Whether you brought your Bible or your phone today, if you have your Bible on your phone, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 6, and I'll be reading from 1 to 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered and all the disciples together and said, it, was, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, I'm going to butcher these names, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Good morning. Great to have you here today. It's nice that we have some cloud cover here too, isn't it? To, uh, you know, uh, you guys all sat in the shade over there, so I'm just going to kind of creep my way up here so I can be a little closer to you. Uh, it's a little bit like, you know, just being in the, in the uh, sanctuary as well, because everybody sits in the back anyway, right? But uh, <clears throat> anyway, so Acts chapter 6, I want you to keep your uh, thumb in your Bible there or stay there if you're uh, following along on your app. But I'm going to take you back to Genesis chapter 12. In, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, God appeared to a man who lived in modern-day Iraq named Abram. And since Abram practiced a pagan religion, he actually uh, didn't really know this God who had spoke to him. Uh, but yet this God came to him and made a deal. God told him, if you move from here to the land that I'm going to show you, and this is a quote here from Genesis chapter 12. He said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here's the key, all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, of course, Abram was known, or later known as Abraham, was known as the father of the Jewish people. But God's call to him was not just for the Jewish people. It was actually for all of humanity. It was a, a universal calling to bless all the nations, all of the ethnes, if you want to get into the Greek there, all of the ethnes of the world. Fast forward a few hundred, actually a couple thousand years to Jesus. 
You know, Jesus' ministry was primarily among the Jews in Galilee. Uh, but the Gospel of Luke tells us that after he was resurrected, and as he was getting ready to leave earth, he told this to his disciples. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, when we think about those, our, our minds naturally go to geography. But what Jesus is talking about there is actually more than just geography. When he talks about Judea and Samaria and the ends of earth, he's actually talking about the people who are represented by each of those locations, all of the ethne, all of the nations. First the Jewish nation, and then the Samaritans, and then the Greeks, and the Romans, and on and on and on from there. Now, the reason I start with those two passages today is that they actually linger in the background of Acts chapter 6 in our story today. Uh, because it's easy to view Acts chapter 6 as simply a parable about church organization. And it is about that. You know, Abby wasn't wrong when she told the kids about different roles being filled in the church. But it actually goes beyond that. It's even more important to that because this is really a passage today that opens the door for the church's mission to the rest of the world. And so if you're not with me already, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Now, last week we looked at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and as difficult as that incident was, the church continued to grow even after it. It, it. In fact, it grew at a pace that was difficult for the apostles to handle. After all, the apostles were just a bunch of blue-collar workers and fishermen. They weren't organizational gurus, and yet they had these thousands of people who they had to try to incorporate into the family of God. And, uh, and, but their success in preaching the gospel resulted in so much growth that it started to strain the church and uh, strain the church community. And so then we find the problem here in Luke 6, or sorry, Acts 6, verse 1, where Luke writes this. He says, In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, we saw earlier on in the book of Acts that one of the main characteristics of the church was their sharing. It was their fellowship, their koinonia, and also their intentional care for the poor. In fact, Luke says multiple times that the church shared their things. They sold things so that nobody within their congregation was in need. But now we see in Acts chapter 6 that this was starting to break down, and there was starting to be some needy people among them. Now, before we get into the problem itself, there's one thing that I think we need to realize, and it's, it's this. It's that just because a problem comes up in a community doesn't mean that it's an unhealthy community, all right? Uh, biologists will tell you, for instance, that sickness and health are not opposites. The opposite of health is disease, because actually sickness is a normal part of a healthy thing. So uh, sickness is the way your body fights off diseases, fights off, uh, fights off uh, threats from the outside. Uh, if your body is doing its job, if your body is healthy, then when you have a bug or a virus or something, you're going to get a runny nose and you're going to feel sick. Uh, but that's not because there's something wrong. It's actually because there's something right. Eventually that will go away and your body will have fought off all of that successfully. But a disease happens 
uh, a disease happens when your body is no longer able to respond to a threat from the outside. So when you catch a cough or a runny nose or a fever, your body is doing what it's designed to do. It's when you don't have those things that you start to run into problems. But disease, of course, is different. It happens when your body can't fight off threats. Um, and in fact, if you want your body to be strong, it has to experience threats. It has to experience some sickness in order to be fully healthy and fully strong. Now, it's not just that way with our bodies. It's also that way with organizations. Sometimes things happen in a group or in a church that we don't anticipate or we're not prepared to deal with in that particular moment. And of course, this will create some struggle and some anxious times. And at times, it will seem like the church organization is even sick. But a healthy church can go through that struggle and learn from it and change, adjust, and come out stronger than it was before. And that's actually what's happening in this case. And so Luke tells us that the Hellenistic Jews start to complain that their widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, to understand that, we have to go back about 600 years before the time of Jesus to the Babylonian exile. When, uh, when the Babylonians came in and they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and carried off many Jews back to Babylon. <clears throat> now, the, the exile lasted only a little bit less than 100 years before the Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem. And once they were able to do that, many of them actually did go back there. <clears throat> but some of the Jews actually got pretty comfortable in Babylon. I mean, they did what the prophet Jeremiah had, had told them to do. They built houses, they settled down, they planted gardens, found husbands and wives for their sons and daughters. They pursued the peace of the city to which God had carried them into exile. And for many of them, life was actually better in Babylon than it was for them in Jerusalem before they left. And so, even when they had the opportunity to go back, they ended up staying but of course, this changed things. It changed things about their faith. You know, the Persians gave way to the Greeks and then the Romans. And then all of a sudden, the whole Roman Empire was open to them. And so they moved freely around the empire and they formed Jewish communities in many places from North Africa up to Turkey, all the way into what we would call Europe today. And, and these people are what we would call the Jewish diaspora. <coughs> And they're called Hellenistic Jews. Uh, if you've ever heard of Hellenism, that means basically the Greekization of, uh, of that whole world. And they probably would have been Greek speakers or spoken some other language rather than their normal uh, Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, but since they hadn't lived around Jerusalem for hundreds of years, they basically had a different culture. While they still followed much of the same religion of their ancestors, because they spoke a different language, because they didn't have the temple near them, their religious practice was very different. And you would even say that even though they were Jewish, they were part of a different ethne. Now, ethne is different than race uh, because it basically means language and customs and things like that. And so many of these Jews who were formerly a part of the diaspora would sometimes move back to Jerusalem, oftentimes because they were getting older and they wanted to be buried in the promised land. And so they would spend their last few days in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
Um, or sometimes they just felt a draw back to their homeland. And so these Greek or other language speaking Jews uh, were still among the first converts to Christianity. And so the early church had the difficult task of being multi-ethnic from the very beginning. And they had to try to incorporate all of these people into the body. Now, in the early church, the Hebraic Jews would have been the majority. Um, all of the apostles, for instance, were Hebraic Jews, which means that they were the ones who wielded the power and control in the community. And that may not seem uh, significant, but the truth of the matter is, is that no matter how sensitive we are to try to be to the needs of other people, we all see things from our own perspective. That's just a natural part of being human. We think that the way we look at the world is the default way to look at the world. And it's easy to miss how we talk or how the decisions that we make impact people who are in different circumstances from our own. And there are very few times, in fact, in any community where there's not some kind of a dominant culture uh, or where we can avoid all imbalances of power. That's just the nature of things. But of course, Jesus taught that the kingdom of God demands that we pay it. We pay special attention to the people who are not at the center of power. So for instance, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is telling his disciples, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Now, when dealing with our own community, that means that those of us who are a part of the majority culture have to be diligent about noticing and serving people who will oftentimes have a tendency to be invisible. And this can happen in many different ways. Uh, for instance, uh, many churches make a very big deal out of Mother's Day and Father's Day. And certainly mothers and fathers deserve great honor because they play important roles in our lives. We believe that the family is an important thing. But, of course, Mother's Day and Father's Day can also be incredibly painful times for many people. For couples who are struggling with infertility, for single men or women who thought that they would be parents by now but never will, for parents who have lost a child or children who, have, who grew up with abusive parents. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't honor mothers and fathers, but it should cause us to be aware of the fact that not everyone experiences those days in the same way. And to be sensitive to them. Another way we can do this is, is that oftentimes when I talk about certain hot button issues, I try to do so in gracious ways, even though I would like to speak prophetically, which to a lot of people that means just tell it how it is. And yet there are people who are experiencing those words differently. So for instance, when I talk about issues of racial justice, you know, I have people of color who are a part of the church and oftentimes thank me for it. When I talk about men mental illness and I acknowledge that this is something that many people struggle with, I oftentimes have people who struggle with mental illness say, thank you for acknowledging that. Thank you for talking about it. Last week when I talked about abortion and I talked about it in a way that was honest, that, that say we value the unborn child and we also value the mother uh, who are in emotionally difficult circumstances, I got messages from people in our community, one who had the opportunity or was tempted to have an abortion years ago and chose life and another one who had an abortion who thanked me 
for being sensitive to the various situations that we come into. And I, I know, again, that many people, they want me to speak prophetically about things, uh, about what we believe, and I think that's, there's certainly a time for that, absolutely. But I think we also need to be sensitive to the different situations of very people, uh, various people, and to say it's complicated doesn't oftentimes sound very prophetic. But it is, I think, more pastoral, and I think it's more truthful in many cases. See, it's easier to pay attention just to the majority, but I don't believe that Jesus just allows us to be satisfied with that. Well, in the early church, the distribution to the widows was actually a program that they had set up to a problem in society. And the problem was is that a woman's livelihood was almost always tied to a man, either a father or her husband. And so if her husband died, she would become vulnerable to poverty. Well, the program here was set up in a way that seemed to exclude the minority widows. Uh, and I don't think it was something that had to do with outright prejudice. It doesn't seem to be that was the case, but it actually didn't really matter. We don't always have to be intentional. Uh, it's not always intentional, but oftentimes even the things that are unintentional end up hurting people that we don't mean to hurt. And so what happened? Well, they brought the problem to the apostles. And of course, this is the ideal way to handle a situation like this. Uh, unfortunately, there are also unhealthy ways to deal with a situation like this too that are probably actually even more uncommon. Uh, one way is that we can just take that problem and keep it to ourselves and just stew about it. Anyone have a tendency to do that? Yeah, that's, that's probably my tendency right there, okay? And this is oftentimes how resentments build up in marriages or in a family or in a church or really in any other group when we keep it to ourselves. And that's why in a marriage or in a church, it's so important for us to be honest about how we're feeling, how decisions impact us. Uh, because in the end, when we express it, it ends up making the relationship better and making the community stronger, even with even when we would rather keep those things to ourselves, okay? But that's one way we do it. We, we hold on to it, we stew about it, and we build up resentment. Uh, another way that we often handle problems is to talk about it, except we talk about it to anyone who, uh, with anyone but the person who can do something about it, right? This is what we call gossip. Um, and I don't know why, but it's really hard for us to say the right thing to the right person. And oftentimes then we end up saying the right thing to the wrong person. But Luke says that the Hebraic uh, part of their congregation actually handled this very well. They let the apostles know about the problem. And of course, then the apostles just said, well, those Hellenistic widows just need to toughen up and become a little bit more assertive. They should just learn to deal with it, right? It'll be good for them. No, that's not what they said. They didn't do that. And, 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 the, and the apostles didn't get defensive either. And uh, they didn't chew anyone out. But what they did was they listened and they acknowledged the problem. In fact, they gathered together the whole community and they acknowledged the problem to the whole community. And then they made a plan to rectify the situation. And so the question is, what was the plan? <clears throat> well, first thing, let me tell you what was not part of the plan. Okay. The apostles didn't drop everything and just fix it themselves. Now, of course, there is 
there are times when it's necessary for leaders to drop everything and fix a problem. You know, when a problem is serious enough, sometimes you just need to deal with it. But they didn't deem that this was one of those times. And instead, the apostles had a specific role to play in the church, the ministry of the word and prayer and all of that. And as important as this issue was, uh, it would have detracted them uh, distracted them from the work that they were actually called to do. And so they delegated, to the, sol- delegated the solution to a group of people, a group of seven people. And they said, these are the types of people that you ought to dedicate it, uh, uh, that you ought to delegate it to. And they came up with three characteristics, right? The first one is they had to be men of good reputation. Now, we don't see this qualification in the New International Version, but it's there. The New International Version just says simply known to be. But a literal translation is, uh, it, it would be translated as people of good repute, all right? This means leaders who have a little bit of a track record that shows the kind of person they are. That they have a good reputation among people. And, and so, you know, we might ask that question then. Well, what kind of reputation? What are the kinds of things that would, uh, that would look like a good reputation? Well, uh, it doesn't really say here, but I think we could probably go to a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul lays out uh, qualifications of leaders. And he talks about things like this. A leader should be above reproach. Okay, this is someone for whom there's no basis for accusation. Someone who's faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable. That means someone who can live within the structures of society, within the structures of the community, even if they're challenging the structures of the community. Someone who's hospitable. In other words, someone who looks out for the needs of people who can't look out for themselves. Uh, Not given to drunkenness. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Okay, these are the kinds of people that he's talking about who have a good reputation in the community. And of course, the list isn't exhaustive, but we can get a good picture of the kind of people that he's talking about if we look at lists like this. And so that's the first qualification. They have to be people with a good reputation. But of course, good character isn't enough. They also had to be full of the Holy Spirit. Okay, in other words, <coughs> they had to be spiritually minded. Excuse me. had to be someone who was spiritually minded. You see, there are a lot of people, including a lot of Christians, who have good character but are not spiritually minded. Um, Those are different things. To be full of the Spirit means to be sensitive to God's mission in the world and what He's trying to accomplish. Let me give you an example of this, or actually a couple of examples. In Matthew chapter 16... After Jesus' disciples confessed that they believed that he was the Messiah, he told them that he was going to Jerusalem in order to be killed by the authorities, the Jewish and the Roman authorities. And remember what Peter did. He stood up and he said, no, never, that is not going to happen to you. And do you remember Jesus' response? He said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. Okay, now most of us would look at Peter And we would say, even at that point, Peter showed good character for wanting to defend and protect Jesus. But he wasn't spiritually minded because he wasn't in tune with what God wanted to accomplish. 
Okay, now, on the other hand, let's fast forward, same guy, Peter, a little bit later, uh, what we saw earlier in the book of Acts, uh, when the authorities commanded this same guy, Peter, to stop preaching about Jesus, he defied them, and he said, I must obey God rather than humans. Now, normally, someone of good character follows the laws of the authorities, follows the laws of society. But in this case, that would have been counter to the Spirit. And so we would have said, well, Peter is a guy of good character, but not full of the Holy Spirit. But here, now, he's full of the Holy Spirit, still full of good character because he's obeying God rather than men. Because to be full of the Spirit is to be in tune with God's plan for the world. Okay, so those two things, of good character, uh, of good, uh, yeah, good character, and full of the Holy Spirit. And then there's a third characteristic, and that is to be full of wisdom. Now, what Luke means here is they have to be someone who is competent in the task that needs to be done. Uh, In this case, that they would have to be good strategic thinkers who could develop a system that ensures that all of the widows are going to have the equal opportunity and, and would be treated fairly. Now, I know that this one sounds a bit less important compared to the others, but it's actually not. Uh, There are many people who have good character and are spiritually minded, but are terrible administrators. You probably know people like that, right? Right? So, for instance, you wouldn't ask someone who doesn't know which way to hold a hammer to build a house. No matter how good their character was, no matter how full of the Holy Spirit they were, you wouldn't ask them to do that. You wouldn't ask someone who can't balance their own checkbook to be the church treasurer. Right? So you got to not just have character, not just be led by the Holy Spirit, but they have to be able to handle the task that's been given to them. Character isn't the same thing as competence, but they're both very important. But Because but, we can make the other error as well. You know, sometimes uh, we mistake giftedness for character. And this is especially true when it comes to charismatic personalities. For instance, there might be a pastor who's an incredible gifted communicator that can draw a big crowd and inspire people. Uh, and, and sometimes even people's lives will be transformed. But if they don't have good character, then eventually that will reveal itself. It will reveal itself in some kind of a scandal, whether it's abuse of power or oftentimes it's a, a sexual scandal of some sort. Uh, And it will send that whole ministry crashing down. And so you can see how all of those characteristics work together to be able to to, uh, define leadership within the church. And so we need leaders with all three of those characteristics. Someone with good character, someone who has in mind the things of God, doing the things that they're gifted to do. And that's what the apostles did. They chose or they told the community to choose people like that. All right, so what happened? Let's go to verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert from Judaism. All right, now, after a couple of thousands of years in the future, all of, it's easy to miss the fact that all of these names have something in common. They're all Greek names. In fact, one of them isn't even Jewish. He's a Greek convert to, to first to Judaism and then to Christianity, right? So they're all Hellenists, right? You see, not only <clears throat> did the church community choose people with good character, with wisdom, with sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, they actually handed over power to people who otherwise might 
be invisible to people who might never otherwise get the opportunity to lead or to add their perspective to be able to make the church better. They recognized that everyone has blind spots. And so to have only one group of people leading will almost always make us less as a community than what God intends for us to be. Okay, now here's why this is so critical. Up to this point, all of the ministry happening, all of the converts were happening just in Jerusalem, okay? They enjoyed the community. They enjoyed the signs and wonders being done by the apostles. Uh, And there were lots of people being saved right there in Jerusalem. Uh, But what wasn't happening? They weren't going out into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, okay? But I want you to notice here, and this is something that we oftentimes miss about this passage. I want you to notice the impact of this seemingly small, insignificant uh, administrative decision, okay? Right away in verse 7, we see the number of disciples in Jerusalem increase rapidly. Even some priests become obedient to the faith. But if we go beyond this passage, Luke actually takes it further. Because the next two stories in the book of Acts show a major disruption that actually changes the church forever. And look at who is at the center of those two stories. Start with verse 8. Now, Stephen. Do you remember that name? He's the first one that's mentioned among the seven. Now, Stephen. And the next story is about him. And what happens? Well, Stephen actually doesn't stay in his lane. Right? He doesn't just wait on tables. Instead, what we find him doing is we find him uh, doing signs and he starts acting like an apostle. Right? He's doing signs and wonders and he's preaching the gospel in all of these different places. Uh, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He knows God's plan. And so he just starts to do it without hesitation or, or without this situation, without being empowered by the apostles, Stephen might have otherwise been overlooked for a position of leadership, but when he was recognized and empowered as a leader, he turned the church upside down, right? And, and, what ha- and on, the one, on the one hand, we might be proud of Stephen, right, for standing up for the faith, but think about the perspective of the early church, okay? I think they could have two different perspectives here because everything changed from that point on, right? So uh, you also might, if you keep on reading, realize that Stephen gets stoned for doing this, by the way, which, you know, you can view that as a positive or a negative, I suppose. <clears throat> uh, but, uh, but look at, uh, you could have had one of two, uh, two attitudes toward this. Um, Someone might say, who's in the church, especially, you know, people who have been there from the beginning, they might say, well, there you go. That's what happens when you let guys like Stephen into leadership. Put him in charge, and what do you get? Complete chaos, right? We should have just stuck with the apostles, right? That could have been one attitude of of people. And sometimes that's how we think about ministry. You know, when we hand over the reins to newer people or to younger people who are qualified but maybe a bit unproven or wouldn't necessarily do things the way we do, sometimes there's a pretty big disruption in the church. You know, the, the, that's the fear oftentimes that older people, and I'm starting to count myself in that. I'm kind of in that transition time, right? That's what happens when people like us start to uh, hand over the reins to elevate younger people or new people into places of leadership and start to empower them. Okay, what happens? 
they start to change things, right? At least if you empower them right. And sometimes that seems like chaos. And sometimes it actually is chaos, right? And, uh, and it takes a while for us to start to get our bearings in the church. Okay, but there's another side of this as well. Because there's another way that we could look at this. We could say, oh my goodness, this is what happens when we let people like Stephen, when we put people like Stephen in charge. Now, we don't love the persecution, but look, the church is finally doing what Jesus told us to do, to go out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, okay? You see, <clears throat> sometimes it takes a little bit of a shakeup for the church to be faithful to our calling. And so that's exactly what happened with Stephen, but there's actually more. Skip a few, uh, a few verses ahead, actually a f- couple of chapters ahead to, to uh, Acts 8.4. <clears throat> it says this, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip, you recognize that name? That's the second name. That's the second in the list of the seven. Went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Right? Why can't these guys just do what they're told? You know, we told them to wait on tables and here they go. They're spreading out and they're starting to preach the gospel everywhere, right? I mean, Philip didn't do what he was told. In fact, a little bit later, it says it took her and started uh, talking to an Ethiopian guy who then took the message to Ethiopia, which at that point was the ends of the earth, right? And all of this happened because of a simple administrative decision to empower people who would normally get overlooked to empower them into positions of leadership you see when we always tap the same leaders for the same positions and i'll admit i get into this rut too but but even as a church then we get stuck in the same ruts and become less effective over time but when we elevate newer and younger people and people who aren't a part of the dominant culture or people of who are people of good character and are sensitive to God then the spirit has a tendency to work in new ways and expands our ministry and can unleash the move of God among us and while the chaos of persecution might seem like a bad thing in acts it actually refined the church and forced them to mobilize mission. Kind of interesting that we get all of that out of just seven verses, isn't it? But if you understand what happens, it's a pretty amazing thing. So as we close here, let me mention maybe three bits of, of, uh, of three takeaways from this passage. I'll just mention a couple of things real quickly. The first thing is this, is that we have to keep our eyes open for people who tend to fade into the background. You see, it's easy to notice people who, who don't mind being out front, who are part of the dominant culture or have a tendency to put themselves out there. And I'm not even talking about in a bad way. Just people who are more outgoing will oftentimes tend to get picked more. People who are introverts or people who aren't part of like the, the central groups or whatever uh, oftentimes don't get picked to do ministries or act to do ministries. But when we don't pay attention to new people, to people who don't naturally fit in, we miss out on both rich relationships in the church and also the gifts that can really build up a community. And so we have to keep our eyes open for people who don't necessarily fit the normal descriptions 
that, of people that we look for in the church. And so each of us, every one of us, including our leaders in here, but you guys too, need to take on, uh, start, take on the responsibility of looking for people who aren't a part of your inner circle and pull them in. Invite them to be a part of what you're doing, whether it's going out to lunch after worship or hanging out during the week. We all need to start to take responsibility for noticing others. And when we can do that, then nobody gets left behind. Okay, so that's the first thing. Second thing is one for me or any of you who are also leaders in the church is that we have to be diligent about finding people who have a tendency to be invisible to volunteer or even to lead okay because we need a a continual stream of godly and gifted and uh and uh people with character um and a diversity of people to propel the church forward into new ministries because who knows the impact that it will have on our church community and on our on our neighborhood it might even be pretty uncomfortable at first but eventually it pays off as the church expands and gets out into new territory. And finally, be ready when the time comes for you to serve. Okay? Make your gifts available and be ready to step into new positions in the church. And it's okay if you've never served before, and it's okay if you wouldn't necessarily do things the same way the previous person did or you normally do in ministry, sometimes we need that newness of ministry to be able to find new and creative ways to to be able to do what God is calling us to do. Okay, and if you notice someone else that has godly character or a certain, and and a certain skill or wisdom, then then you see someone who can build up the body. I want you to bring their name forward. Not right now, but just let me know and just say, hey, I saw so-and-so do this. I think they would be great in this position. Because who knows, maybe you or someone else that no one else expects can be a part of sparking a new move of God to a new group of people within our community or within our neighborhood. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And, uh, and we thank you for the way that sometimes when, even when we're not motivated to fulfill the calling that you've given us, that you have ways to, to motivate us, to force us to do the things that we're called to do. And, uh, and God, I pray especially today that you would help us to, uh, to have our eyes open for people who are not a part of the dominant culture, for people who are new, for people who are invisible, for the introverts, for the people of other, uh, other ethnes, of other cultures, or, or maybe don't come from, uh, or aren't, aren't primarily English speakers, uh, for people who are not part of the dominant group, to elevate them into positions of leadership so that we can see you accomplish what you have called us to do from all the way back in the time of Abraham, that Jesus called us to do uh, as, as he sent us out to be, uh, to be witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even from here, from this place, from northeast Minneapolis to all of Minneapolis, to Minnesota, to the rest of the world. God, I pray that you would uh, enable us, that you would convict us of our... Um, of our tendency to just look at people like ourselves and and pick our own people for places of leadership. May we branch out 
and elevate new people and, uh, and, uh, and people we wouldn't normally look to for positions of ministry. And as we do that, God, I pray that you would bless your church, you would expand our ministry, and that we would find life and joy in what you're doing. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.